If you would, please open up with me at this time to Zechariah 14. Last time I'll get to say Zechariah, uh, well, I might say it still, but uh, as far as opening up, uh, perhaps for a while. Y'all open up to Zechariah. While you're opening there, just one a little bit of housekeeping so I don't forget later. Uh, the a hymn in the bulletin uh, following the sermon, hymn 345, it's actually number two in the red hymnal. If you uh, look to the uh, two signs, you'll see number two. Uh, so I'll, I'll try to remember just to, to throw up the peace sign there. You'll know that it's, it's number two in the red hymnal after um, the sermon. Uh, so while you're opening up to Zechariah 14, as I mentioned, that's the last, uh, last little part. These are the final verses, verses 12 through 21. And we're going to get all the stuff that we've been getting in Zechariah. Uh, intensity, uh, sometimes language that is slightly uh, too intense for the modern ear, and that's okay, because the Lord wants to make sure uh, that he reveals himself explicitly on certain things, and we'll see that yet again uh, at this final piece. But uh, by way of introduction, I really wanted to conclude this second point if I might say it like this, because uh, point number one in Homecoming and Heart Checks, this sermon series that we've been in for uh, kind of summer and fall, uh, and transitioning into fall, rather, uh, uh, spring, summer, fall, we've got Haggai. Y'all remember him? That was short, right? A couple chapters. And then we've got Zechariah. And then we're going to finish with our third point, Malachi. And so as we have dove deeply into what God has been revealing in Zechariah, maybe we could sum it up like this. You got home, and yeah, your hearts weren't where they should have been, but that's okay, because I am going to do a work in you, and I want to show you what that's going to look like for eternity. That's what Zechariah uh, was desirous to show, is what I told the children, that, uh, that, that this is a stop. Uh, if we wanted to use Abrahamic terminology, that we are sojourners. If we wanted to think about the apostle Peter, uh, he's writing to the sojourners in the land, that, that this is a stop for us as followers of God, and that there's somewhere else for us a place that is much better. And so we would do well then to hope for much better. And I know that y'all know that. I know that you've experienced that. I know that we've had heavy, heavy proclamations from the word regarding suffering, regarding evil and the like. And so now as we come to the end, where would we finish? But uh, I think a most obvious place. Our main point then, as we, the Lord's words through Zechariah, the, the final ink on the pen and the period at the end, what does he have for us? It's this. It's that God deserves worship and that he grants spiritual prosperity to those who would worship him. What a strong final point. It's one that we'll end uh, Zechariah on before we transition to Malachi. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll read God's word this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, open up our eyes, open up our ears, open up our hearts, open up our minds. You are the great opener of hard-hearted people. And so God, crack the stone, give us beating hearts and allow us to live and breathe by you. And let us be spiritual people ones who are going down that path of righteousness rather than path of wickedness. And as we worship you, as we proclaim your name, as we praise you, as we pray to you in praise, Lord, help us to be worshipers deep down 
into the very recesses of our souls, where not uh, where anyone else can see us, but right down deep where it's only you and the other person. Lord, let us be one-on-one worshipers of you that come together here at Centennial to praise your name. Let us do it now as we hear your word read in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Zechariah chapter 14, starting with verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord, And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall uh, shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. The grass withers, the flowers fade. The word of the Lord, it stands, it remains forever. And perhaps if I was a guessing man, I would say that you uh, coming to this text are like maybe other parts of Zechariah thinking, I hope we get somewhere in this. (laughs) And rest assured, uh, I truly believe with just a little bit of legwork that we will see that God deserves worship and grants spiritual prosperity to those who worship him. Uh, Three points will help us. Active choice not to worship, passive choice not to worship, and then the active choice to worship. First then, it's plain to see in verses 12 through 15, the active choice not to worship. On the opposite end, in fact, of worshiping God is waging war against God, and we see that. In verse 12, 
of our text this morning. Jerusalem has already been signified as God's throne in verse 10. Remember, if you were with us, that, that uh, the mountain of Jerus that Jerusalem is on, Mount Zion is, is the only mountain around because God has stomped and smushed out everything else and made it a plain. Remember, that was his throne. That was his strategic place of protection for his people. But it doesn't matter, even in the face of those untimely odds, the people who want to wage war against God will choose to wage war against God, even when it is so obvious that defeat is coming. And so, uh, I, I don't believe I need to explain what will ultimately happen to those seeking to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Lord, because God's word here is actually quite explicit. Uh, uh, that, uh, you know, it's almost, uh, we could think horror-esque, but, but in reality, that, that's, that's what it looks like to go against the God of the universe. There is no other reality that would come except for defeat. But with that said, it's important for us to see the dangers of this active choice not to worship. Because this is not a far off problem uh, where we might think, for instance, well, you know, of course, there are parts of the world uh, that, you know, have, are, are, are inset and beset with false religion and, uh, and the like. And, and, you know, over there, yes, active war is being raged against Christianity. But, but this is not a far-off problem alone. We see that even in our text this morning. Even in Judah, I hope you noticed, God's country is how you might say that. Even in Judah, God's country, there, there are those who will fight at or against Jerusalem. In other words, there are those in the midst of the people of God who will actively choose not to worship. And even as we are reminded of the closeness of this problem, we are also reminded of God's total and absolute sovereignty over creation. Because as this war is being raged, as this uh, waged rather than uh, the rage of the people and waging the war, and, and as we see this plague kind of break out against these people who are going against the Lord, we get this terminology that happens a very quick and we begin to see that God is in control, not just of people, but also of things and also of creation. We see God's power over people in verses 12 and 13 as the plague breaks out and affects them. We see that God is in control over things in verse 14 as all gold and stuff is brought in. And we even see then that this plague, just like this other one, goes against all the creatures. What? Why? Who cares, right, is what we might think. But the reality is, is that when you think about people, uh, stuff, and the rest of creation, you've got it all. God is in control, is sovereign over, sits on his throne, as it were, in Zion, from Jerusalem, reigning supreme over all things. God is deserving of worship because God is creator and sustainer of all these things and in control of all these things. And the opposite of worship is war in these verses. And the opposite of prosperity is destruction. And we see that quite plainly in our first point. The active choice not to worship. And as we continue along this belief 
spectrum. There is a transition out of this active choice not to worship into what is our second point, this passive choice not to worship. Verses 16 through 19. The command in verse 16 is to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. One of those ways being the observation of the Feast of Booths. We'll get back to that. So if you're wondering, wait a second. I'm a little short on my Feast of Booths knowledge. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. So, uh, but, but just recognize that that's one way, a very prominent way, uh, that, that we will see this worship of the king. It's a, uh, if I might say it like that, it, it's, it's uh, uh, inclusive of a sun, Feast of Booths is like a Sunday morning plus a life of righteousness all built into one, like a life of worshiping God on a day-to-day basis. And so we'll see that in a moment. But, but verse 17, as we continue on seeing this passive choice, it, it reveals a landscape where not worshiping God is still a thing. So the war has been waged and, and won. Uh, those who are actively going against the Lord have, have been dealt with quite, quite explicitly. But But instead of active war now, we see passive inactivity or at least a chance for it. Verse 17, if any of the families of the earth do not go up. Uh, There are no swords drawn. There are no armies raised. There might not even be any grumbling in the homes and streets about God. It's just no care for the Lord at all. But God has commanded worship because God deserves worship. And the passive choice not to do so is still not worshiping. If I had to place our first two points, that is uh, the active choice not to worship, uh, that waging war-esque feel, and then the passivity, the passive choice, in 21st century America, the waging of war against God would be um, most obviously seen in the government and academic institutions, higher education especially. If uh, uh, those of you working in such places, you know exactly what I mean. If you are unaware of these things, please come and talk to me and we can, we can kind of see this and be ready for this. It's why we do the things we do with our children. Because higher education is coming, even grade level nowadays. Teachers, y'all know. We got a ton of teachers. And they are front line, hard line, trying to make sure that our kids aren't going the way of the world, and yet they see it. It's hard. Don't you talk to some of our teachers? I see some of them here about how difficult the kids have it. Not just, I'm not talking about some uh, indoctrination program or something like that. I'm talking about the ways of the world. It's easy to talk about some kind of curriculum or something like that. It's a lot harder to talk about uh, the smell of it, right? The world and how it seeps in to who we are. That's hard. That's why the governments go in the same way, if y'all know what I mean. Uh, Imagine Jeremiah Thomas, a Bible-believing pastor, uh, running for office in the city of Columbia. Uh, You'd say, oh yeah, we'll vote for you. Uh, You wouldn't be in the majority. I can guarantee it. I can guarantee it. And so we see this active war there, but, but we also need to remember that, that there's this passive choice not to worship and, and that uh, this kind of reality of passivity would be more firmly planted in the general population as well as the churches of today. Simply put, the general population of America could care less about the worship of Jesus. It's not a hate thing. It's just not even an active choice. 
It's not even, uh, it's not even a disbelief thing. Hey, you believe in Jesus? Absolutely. Well, what do you do? Oh, nothing. I don't do anything. You, y'all, as we sit here uh, in church, it is a moment to praise God that he has stirred us out of our own passivity. For we dare not think that we wouldn't be those passive people who don't give a lick about the Lord unless the Holy Spirit worked to work in us. And yet, as we survey the land and where we are, have you begun to realize that where we are, not the world, not northern part of America, not west coast, talking about South Carolina, that people don't care as much about Jesus as they once did. That's a fact. And you can see it. And we need to be ones who uh, don't get put down or put off by that, but simply can be aware of it. That we might rise up and, and, and not act out of uh, a lack of knowledge, but rather with preparation come into situations realizing the reality of the situation. That is where we stand as a, a passive population uh, as opposed to previous generations. And you could see that even in number trends if you wanted to, though I don't think that's as good an example as others, like spiritual trends and things like that. And while we're on this concept of general populace of, of people, uh, really, I, I think the thing that we need to be most aware of is the people identifying as followers of Jesus who are passively choosing not to worship God by choosing other things to fill their daily lives. And this is where I would say, is it us? Is it us? Is it us? It is so easy for us to think that, that we are ones who are holding the line, and yet when we look and we truly begin to examine ourselves, perhaps we, like Paul, might say that we are chief among those sinners who are forgetting about the Lord in the things that we do. Not maliciously, not out of waging war, but passively, what we might call accidentally. Oops. It's easy to focus on the negative, though. And that's not where I want to ever be. I don't like the negative. And so we see some positive here as well. And that's where we need to transition because to think on God's judgment of those not going up, to think on ourselves and wonder, man, what is our culture and society looking like? All of those things are there. But uh, if we do that only, we miss the free offer of salvation that God is so, uh, is so purposefully putting forward here in our text this morning. Let's get a crash course on the Feast of Booths and we're going to see the gospel in that and we're going to see it here in Zechariah 14. So uh, the Feast of Booths is a feast commemorating that time, that transition from uh, being enslaved in Egypt, going all the way out into uh, entering the promised land. In between, there is a wilderness journey. And in that wilderness journey, there are tents that you got to set up every morning, uh, tents that you got to break down. Uh, tents you set up every evening, tents you got to break down every morning. Uh, you might call them booths, okay? And so this feast of booths that is set up, sometimes called Feast of Tabernacles,
tabernacles uh, is, uh, is set up to the point where uh, when, you, uh, uh, when you observe this feast, which by the way, uh, comes uh, late, late, late in the year, uh, praising the Lord for what he has given you in the harvest and praying to God for rain to come, okay? It, it's, it's pivotal in this moment where, where uh, uh, you've gotten what you've gotten, you've reaped what you've sowed, and then you're asking God for another good year. And in the midst of that presentness of the timing of the feast, you're also uh, living in this booth for some days. You've come, you build a tent and you stay out in your yard. In Colombia, you can see practicing Jews sitting in their booths. Sukkot, Shakat, however you want to say it. And so you see this moment of the Feast of Booths, of the Feast of Tabernacles, of this observation. And you remember this time where you had nothing. And yet God, he raised you up out of Egypt. He delivered you with his own hand. And he pulled you out of that place with miracle after miracle after miracle. And he brought you through the wilderness all the way when you had nothing, not even food or water. What did he do? He rained food from the sky every day. Except for Sunday. Got twice the day before so you could rest on that day. And water came out of a rock. A rock! Be like this if water just started gushing forth. The Feast of Booths is where you would remember all of these things and God's provision. And then we see here something incredible because God is asking the people to go up and to observe the Feast of Booths. But who all is he asking? He's asking the people of God. He's asking all the families of the earth up to and including by name Egypt. And what did Egypt do? They enslaved God's people. Why does the Feast of Booths exist? The Feast of Booths exists because uh, of Egypt and Egypt's enslavement of the people. And so now you see the reality that God himself is saying, Oh, you Egyptian, oh, you sinner, oh, you who does not believe in God, oh, you who does believe in God or who says you do but is passively remaining to the side. All of you come and observe the Feast of Booths and remember that you have nothing spiritual Spiritually, and yet by me I will give you everything you need I will give you salvation and we know of course on this side of the cross that it comes specifically directly explicitly through God himself and the Lord Jesus Christ who lived that perfect life who died on the cross a sacrificial death and he exchanged our sin for his righteousness and now we enter in to that heavenly place on our feet because of what God has done for us. It's a Feast of Booths moment where he takes us out of our sin and he pulls us all the way into salvation. And he says, I have done it for you. Observe it. Worship me and remember. And that's where we're transitioning to. Because yes, there is this passive, worship, uh, this passive choice not to worship. Of course, there are those who are waging war, but there is very good news for us. 
because there we see at the final piece, the last ink that's drying on the page for Zechariah is the reality of the active choice to worship. Our third point, and it leads to a life filled with spiritual blessing. And we see this in verses 20 and 21 where heaven comes down to earth. There were so many different parts and pieces to the sacrificial system that revealed God and his perfection, humanity and our imperfection, and the need for a sacrificial bridge to allow God and humanity to have a real relationship again. Some of our Sunday school classes, I believe, are in Leviticus. Y'all are going to be covering this quite explicitly over the next uh, several weeks. I believe another of our classes is in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, where you are inherently uh, going over these things for the next couple weeks. And, and we begin to see all of these things that point directly over and over to the Lord Jesus. And the same is true here. We see a couple aspects in verses 20 and 21. Uh, let me read cha uh, Exodus chapter 28, verse 33. It's, uh, it's part of God's command for the high priest's clothes. Uh, he tells his people to put bells of gold around the hem of his garment, alongside actually blue tassels. If you recall the Bible passage where the woman uh, uh, who has had uh, some difficulties for some amount of years reaches out and touches the hem of Jesus's garment. Uh, in all actuality, she's probably touching that, that thread that we see here. Uh, that's another time and another day. But we see these bells that are supposed to be put on the hem of the high priest's garment. In Exodus chapter 28, verse 33, it goes on to say, in, uh, in chapter 28, verse 36, uh, you shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. The verse part of verse 20. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. The horses. <laughs> Let's continue. Uh, there's more. Uh, in a single sentence, the Lord has revealed, uh, there's got to be a joke. That's why I laugh. There's got to be a joke somewhere in here about priests or pastors and horses because in a single sentence, the Lord, he makes a horse as holy as the holiest man in Israel. That's what he's saying. The horse is going to have bells. The horse is going to have the signet that says holy to the Lord. The horse is going to be as holy as the high priest, the one that all of you look to to make that sacrifice on the day of atonement. Similarly then, as we continue, the bowls before the altar where the sacrifices were made, they were holy, which means set apart, which means unable to be used by those who were not also set apart. The Levitical priests within the priesthood, the Levites, as they moved and as they operated as intercessors on behalf of the people of God, these bowls that were in the temple that were meant for uh, sacrificing and then the priest would then subsequently eat them for sustenance. It's how the Lord provided not only for his people uh, on the outside but for his people his servants on the inside as you saw the sacrificial system at play day in and day out these bowls that you couldn't get to if you were just a regular person in Israel well now every pot in every house meets that holiness level that perfection requirement and you can eat out of it in other words, 
What you see is a pervasive holiness, a pervasive righteousness that is no less than heavenly. For where the Lord pervades in his presence can only be perfection unless you are destroyed. And so if you're in your house tonight and you sit down apart from the Lord and you try to eat out of one of these bowls, typically poof, you die. Uh, unauthorized fire this morning, right? In the quarterly. Unauthorized fire. What happened? Gone. Look it up in Leviticus if you weren't in one of those quarterly classes. Uh, there is a reality that, that unclean presences cannot come into the presence of that which is perfect, the Lord himself. And yet here we see that, that God's presence is going out and that, and that the people's presence is somehow perfect because of what the Lord has done. It's a heavenly place, a better place than what we have now. Even more than this. All corruption in the house of God itself will be removed as signified by the removal of the traders who would overcharge and underprovide in things like money exchange rate and sacrifice provision. In other words, oh, you have a 20 uh, uh, American? Sorry, for, uh, you know, for our currency, uh, you'll get 10. Sorry, so... Anyways, thanks for doing business with me. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're taking advantage of the, in the same way for sacrifice provision. You say, I don't have uh, a lamb. Uh, I'm not rich. I live in the city, uh, but uh, you know, I have some money and I'd like to buy a turtle dove because that's what the poor would use as a turtle dove. They say, that'll be $500. For a turtle dove? Yes, if you want to sacrifice before the Lord, that's how much it's going to be. You better go, you know, do whatever you need to do. Okay. That is unholy and unrighteous. And yet, what do we see here but a removal of such things? A den of thieves no more, but a house of prayer as the Lord raises up and reveals to us something new and better. And with no question, this is a picture of heaven. And sometimes our fantasies and fears of heaven can get in the way of the truth of heaven that we see here in verses 21 and 22. What do you think of when you think of heaven? We ask the little ones, what do you think? Think it's going to be puffy white clouds with free ice cream and golf courses? You think you're going to only sing? Oh, I'm not really looking forward to that. I only sing, right? That's, what, that's the two I hear always. Only singing? Fluffy white clouds with ice cream and golf courses. That generally sums up the thoughts of the world and our people on heaven. But what we see in reality from the scriptures is something, uh, dare I say it, almost ordinary. Houses and people and worship like this and song, of course, and prayer unto God and fellowship and movement as a people. And yet, without all the pain and suffering, the work that you do now, imagine it without sin. Imagine it without pain. Imagine it without suffering. Imagine yourself getting up in the morning, realizing that you have no pain, Physically or emotionally, it's almost unimaginable. Imagine if you rise up in the morning spiritually and you have no doubts 
no frustrations, no sin. Imagine coming together as a people and not recognizing that wherever one or two gathers, yes, the Lord is, but right now there's also sin. Friction and frustration. Imagine perfect harmony wherever you go. Family, friends, work, church, country, person. I know it's almost unimaginable, but with the mind that God has given us, stretch and stretch and stretch some more. And that is the hope that he has given you, that there is a place that is better. And I know it seems silly because it's bells on horses and a gold plate on a horse and a pot in your house. And yet this is the ordinary and easy, yes, easy language that God has given us to get us to the point that we could have hope, that we could be drawn in hope and joy to a knowledge of what the Lord has done and is doing in all of our lives and for the church as we continue in this place where 9-11s happen and a virus rages. But we are mere sojourners in this place and there is something else coming, a new heaven and a new earth. I love the pictures of heaven that we get in Revelation. I love the pictures that we get from the Lord Jesus' lips himself. I love Daniel and where we see and what we see with the ancient of days. But I love Zechariah 14 for how ordinary it is. As he finishes it off with pots, it's his final point, pots in the house. And you think, oh God, I could have that. I could get there and it would be really nice. That is heaven. A removal of those things that shouldn't be and a replacement with all the things that should. And in that moment, we praise God because remember how simple and profound our main point is. Worship God for he commands and directs us to do so. But remember the next part. Because in exercise of this worship, we are granted spiritual prosperity to see us through the day. Because this place is difficult and hard and it's not our home. And yet God gives us as we worship him, he blesses us with his presence. And his presence stirs us up and gives us so many benefits that it's hard to describe in one sentence, one paragraph, one book. That's why John himself would say, I just have to have a whole library of books if I were to tell you all the things that Jesus did. When we focus on the King, the Lord of hosts, in this life, pain, pleasure, and whatever else this life brings, it's put in its place because of our gifted prosperity from God himself. And so I beg you centennial people, family and friends and visitors, if you are one who is confessing in the Lord Jesus, praise your God for he is living and active and he is moving in our midst as he has always promised. And when you do so, please tell me the testimony that you have for then we might worship the Lord together. This is the song we're about to sing, just one piece of it. Oh, worship the King, all glorious above, 
Oh, gratefully sing his power and his love, our shield and defender, the ancient of days. There's Daniel. Pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. Let's gird the Lord with praise this day. Let me pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you for how good you are. Thank you for the picture that you give us, a simple picture, and yet a profound one that is quite simply unimaginable. And yet, Lord, by your Spirit, we stretch and we stretch and we hope. And as we hope, Lord, we pray all the more that we might worship and praise you, that we might uh, receive that spiritual sucker that we need for the day. And as we move forward in song now, but I pray in song to come, that we would be ones who find our rest in thee because you are our defender, O Lord, and our sustainer and protector. And so, God, may we worship you. May we be blessed by you. May we do it all, not just today, but moving forward in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.